Welcome to the 72nd episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvard with my co-host, Vicki Nichols-Golstein of the Inland Ocean Coalition. And hello, everyone. Today, it's our pleasure to talk with Carlene Leiden-Walker, co-founder and CEO of NAMEPA, the North American Marine Environmental Protection Association that works to promote sustainable maritime industry best practices for protecting the ocean environment. A longtime communication specialist, Carly now works on strategic alliances between the maritime industry, government regulators, conservationists, and educators, including at the nation's maritime academies. Among her many awards, she's been honored by the U.S. Coast Guard and the U.N.'s International Maritime Organization. So lots to cover here, Carlene. Let's start with your first connections to the ocean and also how you ended up in the maritime sector. Number one, I want to say thank you to both you and to Vicki for inviting me today. It's always an exciting opportunity for me to talk about an industry I'm passionate about and keeping the oceans and lakes and rivers clean, which is another one of my passions because I grew up on an island south of Detroit called Grosseal. And when it lies where the Detroit River meets Lake Erie, and when I was a little girl, the Detroit River was the second busiest waterway after the Suez Canal. So when, you know, how young girls are angsty and I would go down to the water and I would watch these ships going up and down and I'd wonder who's on board, what are they carrying, where are they going? And I wanted to go with them. But I've translated my career uh, and professional life as a marketing and communications person into an industry that I love about 30 years ago and just really appreciate the role that the shipping industry plays as the engine of global trade. But I'm, what I'm excited about with NAMEPA is working with industry, conservationists and educators to save our seas. And it's like with the ports, when I was writing about the port of LA Long Beach, realizing many people living around the ports were fairly unaware, even though about half of every product made in China comes across those docks. There are over 90,000 large ships, over 300 tons, that are moving 90% or more of everything we consume and trade mm-hmm. it. And I think just giving a sense of, of what the maritime sector looks like might be helpful before we go into Well, I find it interesting that you particularly reference the Port of Los Angeles, uh, Long Beach, because I was uh, down at the Port of LA in San Pedro, and Jean Siroca told me a story of how they held a town hall, and one man stood up and said, I don't know why we need ships. I get everything I need from Walmart. (laughs) But therein lies the challenge. Uh, JQ Public doesn't understand its relationship with shipping unless we ground uh, the ever given up in the Suez Canal. And so how did NAMEPA get get its start? And when was that? We just celebrated our 15th anniversary and it got its start because in 2006, I was in Greece and I ran into somebody I'd met in Stamford, Connecticut in 1995, this was Dimitri Mitsatsos, who was the executive director of HELMEPA, the Hellenic Marine Environment Protection Association. HELMEPA was founded 40 years ago by an American-born Greek ship owner named George P. Lovanos. And he felt that his industry and his colleagues needed to do a better job saving our seas. They started HELMEPA. And in 2006, I said to Dimitri, why is there no MEPA? in North America. And he said that 
the North America was too big. Nobody could wrap their arms around it. Well, I like a good challenge. And I also identified the fact that it was when the maritime industry itself wanted to get more engaged with protecting the, the marine environment and mitigating its impacts on the marine environment at the same time that society was demanding it. So NAMEPA was formed in October of 2007. We started with 33 members and now we have over 200. Tell us about more about what you do and what's the value of your organization? Our organization, um, the, we're a maritime industry-led organization. As I said, we have over 200 members, primarily ship owners and solution providers and uh, for the shipping industry and ports. And we engage in two specific areas of activity. One is bringing together the industry and regulators and environment uh, conservation groups and educators to discuss strategies to mitigate our industry's impact on the marine environment. The other side of the house, it works on education. We educate seafarers, port communities, and students to save our seas. Overarching all of this is my continual efforts to educate the general population about the value proposition of shipping. What were the first issues that you addressed and, and how did you first bring together, I suspect, suspicious conservationists with uh, reluctant shipping industry folk? Well, I have to ad admit that when we were first founded, uh, we were called salty tree huggers. <laughs> and I, I particularly took offense to that. But um, we have, throughout our 15 years, we, our goal has been to find the balance between commerce and conservation. And as you said, you know, generally when people, if people thought about shipping, it was when there was oil in the water and dead birds. So that was a, a lot of our activity began there. And then when the BP oil spill happened with the Deepwater Horizon, a lot of focus was put on mitigating those impacts without creating new ones. You, you know, not every solution is a solution. And we learned a lot during that exercise. We were also having a lot of challenges with the ballast water regulations because the U.S. didn't want one thing and the IMO wanted another. And we've always been engaged in marine debris. Always. One of the first pieces of communication we developed was where is your litter exactly where you left it? And that talked about the decomposition of, of litter, such as, you know, plastic uh, beverage rings, glass bottles. And we co uh, collaborated with Noah on that piece. And we struggled because, uh, just to give you an example of, of how precise Noah is, we wanted to make the claim that glass bottles live forever in the oceans. But they said, no, you have to have a specific number. So we'll put a thousand years. Oh, interesting. Well, you had mentioned that there was a lot of impact on the ocean from the maritime industry. We briefly talked I'm, about I didn't that. say that. I'm saying oh, okay. mitigating the impacts we have. Okay. So um, why don't you share with us what those impacts are? Well, first off, one of the things that isn't understood is that uh, shipping is the most environmentally efficient mode of transportation. You're talking about bulk goods. We are so much more efficient than air or trucks or even rail. So to that effect, we are environmentally and we are economically efficient. What we're striving to do is to reduce even those impacts on the marine environment because, you know, we're people. 
we're people that eat and, you know, we eat from the sea and we breathe the air. We want it to be as clean as possible. So we are constantly looking at our entire operational chain to make sure that we don't have negative impacts on the marine environment. And we also adhere to, we, we are, another thing that's poorly understood about shipping is that we are regulated internationally and we are regulated by the UN body that David referenced, which is the International Maritime Organization. We have developed in the IMO and next year, 2023, will be the 50th anniversary of MARPOL regulations, marine pollution regulations. And there are six annexes that range from annex one is oil, annex six is air. So all of these have been refined through the years and improved. But just in the last five to 10 years, I would say the a lot of emphasis has been put on emissions and therefore the decarbonization of our industry. And we're working towards that now. And that's an interesting one in that with the ports, a lot of the decarbonization was also reducing um, pollution from diesel trucks mm-hmm. and, and uh, ships that were burning bunker fuel in port, which is kind of the dregs of the petroleum process. The shipping industry also has uh, historically burned some pretty crude petroleum. IMO had been talking as, as the reality of, of the need to end fossil fuels. For a long time, they were talking about 50% reduction of uh, fossil fuels by 2050. Now, I think the UN and the science is all talking about decarbonizing everything by 2050, a huge challenge. And, and particularly, I imagine, for the maritime sector, because ships have long lifespans, we don't quite know what carbon-free fuels will be available, practical. Tell us a little about the challenge of getting uh, 90,000 large ships transitioned from fossil fuels to clean fuels in the next Mm -hmm. 30 years. Well, obviously, the, you know, the industry and the IMO have been looking at this for quite a while. In fact, in 2018, uh, the IMO issued its emission reduction strategy, which at the time called for a 40% reduction by 2030 and a 50% reduction by 2050, as you said, David. I was at COP26 last year, and it was exciting to be there because I watched my, my industry pivot to zero by 2050. Now we have to have the regulations to catch up and we need the technology, i.e. the future fuels to catch up because it's not just a question of changing a blend, but we've got practice doing this to be perfectly honest with you. We made a pivotal change in 2020. In 2020, we went from 3.5% sulfur content globally in our fuels to 0.5. A global shift for those 90,000 vessels that you just referenced. Now, some of, some vessels already were used to lower uh, sulfur fuels because, for instance, in North America, in the North Sea, we have something called emission control areas or ECAs. So they've been looking at 0.1% since 2014. But for the rest of the globe, and if you're not in an ECA, going from 3.5 to 0.5 was a huge transition, and we did it. Now, in the past few years, what the IMO has been working on is getting benchmarks. What is our emission profile and where do we need to go with it? Next week, the Marine Environment Protection Committee is going to be meeting at IMO to have the conversation that you just referenced, David, which is 
we at this point, our target is 50% by 2050. Do we want to get it to zero by 2050? And uh, then next year, whatever recommendation comes out of the MEPC committee next week, will again be discussed next June and adopted by IMO. IMO has promised a revised emission strategy in 2023. I expect that to be zero by 2050. Now, how do we do that? As I said earlier, it's not just a question of getting a new blend because you've got enormous distribution challenges for those 90,000 vessels. Some of them are easier than others. So you can be a little more creative with your fuels because for instance, um, I mean, LNG, we all know that's a carbon-based fuel, but that is really being looked at by the industry as a transition fuel. I would say 10 to 15 years in order to build the capability for some of these non-carbon or e-fuels. We have experience. We've got 60 years of experience with LNG. Uh, we also have some infrastructure, but I think we're going to be seeing more. The kind of ship profiles that could use something like that are the point-to-point -point ships, what we call the liner vessels. And what's being discussed right now are green shipping corridors so that the ships that go from, let's say, Singapore to LA, that's what they do. Singapore to LA, back to Singapore, back to LA, back to Singapore. That's a shipping corridor. And if you can establish the bunkering of whatever fuel those ships are using, whether it's LNG, whether it's methanol, whether it's ammonia, then you can set up that green shipping corridor and reduce emissions within that corridor. You've got a lot of opportunity for battery in ports. So a lot of the passenger vessels can go for battery operations be, or, or even maybe at some point get into hydrogen because they're, they can just go and you know, recharge. They're going point A to point B back to point C, but they're all in a narrow range. So that's good for ports and coastwise. The area that has, provides us with probably the most challenge are the bulkers. And those would be your tankers or your dry bulk ships, because a lot of them are on what we call the spot market, which is today you may be going from Houston to Rotterdam. Tomorrow, you might be going from Rotterdam down to Nigeria. So there isn't a steady run, a point to point type of run. So you have to be flexible in your provisioning of your bunker fuel. So what are some of the bunker fuels we're looking at? Methanol has gotten a lot of conversation. It's not totally green and um, they're working on e-methanol, but then you have to build the infrastructure for it as well. Hydrogen is getting a lot of attention. Ammonia, I have a particular concern about ammonia in the event of a release, it, it kills people. Um, so I'm, I have a concern about that. We're looking at nuclear. At atomic. And this is not your, your father's atomic. This is small nuclear reactors or molten salt reactors. And these are smaller units that have much less waste and have a, a higher degree of safety than we've ever seen before. We have to get over public opinion on that one. Yeah. And is the industry supportive of these initiatives or, you know, both the U.S. and the international maritime industry, are they going along hand in hand? Well, yes and no. First off, I mean, David just referenced the green truck program in the port of LA Long Beach, mm -hmm. heavily subsidized by the US government. 
These green, the green truck program in Seattle, heavily subsidized. All of the green, the truck programs have been heavily subsidized. Shipping has yet to see that sort of subsidizing in order to make this transition. Now, there are a lot of initiatives, a lot of private initiatives. For instance, Maersk just ordered, I think it was eight methanol fueled vessels, and they're going to be involved heavily in financing the bunkering and even the development of the engines and and the way that methanol is used on their ships. But not every ship owner has Maersk's deep pockets. So what Europe is doing to really force seizure, because right now, as I mentioned earlier, we don't have the regulation that mandates zero. Maybe that's that's regulation may be needed. Um, well, that's what the IMO is working on. That's what I said earlier, is that I expect IMO to start building the regulations to go to zero. Because really, um, it's for a crisis. I mean, the market's great for like making sure we have gasoline at holidays. But when it's like a global threat, like World War II or the nuclear balance of terror or climate change, government has a role. And even, yes, even the, the CEO of Maersk has suggested that there should be a carbon tax on uh, ships to well, help accelerate this now. Yeah, he, but do you know, you, do, you saw that the EU has approved the emission trading scheme to include shipping. Mm-hmm. That's going to be billion. What would that look like? Well, it's any ship trading in and out of the EU, including both legs, gets taxed. Mm-hmm. And that tax goes into a fund. And as they're saying it now, part of that will be used for the decarbonization of shipping. Carlene, are you um, involved at all in any of the discussions with whale strikes in the industry? Mm-hmm. Is that Can you Absolutely. talk a little bit about that? Because I know that's one of the big issues that people are talking about. I'll tell you what my perspective is and also the action activity that I've been involved in personally. On the East Coast here, we have the right whale. The right whale migrates twice a year. It goes up, it comes back down again. During those migratory periods, there are regulations that require shipping to slow down in the migratory pattern lanes, if you will. And, and we're able to do that. But some environmental groups want us to slow beneath operational safety. And that's where education comes into play, because by all of our admission, we'll say that the maritime industry is an opaque industry. And one of the roles that NAMEPA has played is as a portal between conservation groups and industry so that industry can hear what conservation groups' concerns are, i.e. whale strikes, but that conservation groups can hear no, we can't slow down to four knots in the middle of an ocean in a storm because we're not, oper- we can't be operational in that storm. And then you end up with a ship on the beach and that's a bigger problem. Nobody wants to arrive in port with a whale on their bow. Trust me. Okay, I believe but, you. <laughs> but a couple of other things. We got involved in the Wildlife Conservation Society did a partnership with HUI with Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, and they put what we called a HUI buoy outside (laughs) the port of New York. And when I talked to Wildlife Conservation Society about that, I said, well, how are you interacting with agents, with industry? And they hadn't developed a plan yet. So I worked with them to bring in all the stakeholders for the port of New York so that we could all learn about what the benefits and challenges would be of the hooey buoy. Well, 
one of the challenges is that the data wouldn't be available for three weeks. It wasn't real time. That was six years ago. Today, it is real time data. And because the Coast Guard said, look, if you can tell us that there's a pot of whales in the region, we will put the alert out and ships will be on, on high alert looking for them. And then they had a wonderful scientist, Dr. Uh, I think his name was Dr. David Rubenstein, who was a whale expert. And I said, you know, what I don't understand is if whales hearing is so acute and is being harmed by the noise, the underwater noise generated by ships, then why don't they get out of the way when they hear a ship bearing down on them? And his answer was, well, if a whale is feeding or I can't, yeah, socializing, right? <laughs> they won't move for anything. Ah. So yes, shipping is very much engaged in trying not to hit marine mammals. Up in Boston, there's a whale buoy that is constantly reporting on whale marine mammal movements. And we try to stay out of the way. That was a, a very, really successful collaborative yes. effort. On the West Coast, there are zones that are also required with, with certain speed limits. Right. And it's been helpful. And, and as you mentioned, the technology is evolving where there's yes. a possibility now of uh, feeding real-time information of whale movements to captains of ships. Um, yes. To allow them to slow down or avoid bodied whales. Yeah. But they have to look at their operational framework. We have to look at their context, their domain awareness. If it's a busy shipping lane and there are lots of ships there right now, we have to make sure that we have the ability to make way. When you deal with fishing today, you also have to deal with illegal, unregulated, and unreported mm -hmm. fishing. Within the shipping, the maritime industry, there's a lot of older ships, the flags of convenience allow for ownership that's not clear. And a lot of the high ratio of the Coast Guard busts of ships dumping oily waste or ships leaving mariners stranded in different mm. ports around the world mm -hmm. happened with COVID is a result of, I'd say, a lack of oversight for parts of the industry. And how does that get remediated? Well, I will, I will tell you that regulations are only as good as the enforcement. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can establish highway speeds, you know, a speed limit of 55. But if it's not enforced, heck, I'm not doing 55. Same with uh, international maritime regulations. They are created by the IMO, but they are enforced by port state or flag states. So port state, let's, let's to, to give you an example using the U.S. The U.S. is both a port state control as well as a flag state control. And I will tell you that in my opinion, in the opinion of many maritime professionals, the United States Coast Guard is the best port state control in the world. Now of the- I wrote about that in my book, Rescue Warriors, the US yes. Coast Guard America. So. Exactly. But of the, let's say almost 100,000 port calls in the United States, they all, the Coast Guard will investigate maybe seven to 8,000 and they will issue warnings and detentions. The Coast Guard developed something called Qual Ship 21 and E-Ship 21. And basically it's, a, it's essentially similar to the Paris MOU and the Tokyo MOU where they list the results of their detentions and they will whitelist 
certain flags where they have the least number of detentions. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, it's incentivizing flag state administrations to be as rigorous with the ships that are registered with them so that the entire flag can stay on the white list or the qual ship 21 list. So that's another enforcement. That's an incentive enforcement measure because frankly, you don't want to be inspected. Right. Although it's hard for countries. I mean, they call them flags. I mean, it's hard for countries like Liberia or the Marshall Islands to really manage large fleets that are valued. David, I'm, I'm going to disagree with you, and I rarely do this. Both the Liberian Registry and the Marshall Islands Registry are managed out of uh, one is in Fairfax, Virginia, and the other is in somewhere in the States. Yeah, they're both in Virginia. And they have got, I, I would say that certainly the Marshall Islands has one of the most rigorous flag state administration of, of all. And Lisker, Liberia, is right behind it. I think Panama's getting better. They're certainly not been great. And there are others that are also good. But there are some that aren't. And that, I mean, I would say flag state administrations for the good, the really responsible registries. And I will say flags of convenience for the rest because they don't enforce and they don't inspect. And I am a big proponent of eradicating substandard shipping. What are the environmental or marine conservation groups that you think get shipping and, and that you work with? We work with Ocean Conservancy, and I work very closely with Sandra Whitehouse on a wonderful initiative. Uh, it was marine spatial planning because the Ocean Conservancy recognized that there were all these uses of the ocean that needed to be identified and almost charted so that we weren't overlapping and interfering. And you know, for instance, there was a, a wind farm plan for a shipping lane, right in the middle of the shipping lane. You can't do that. Another you know, cable lane going right through fishing grounds. You can avoid that, but knowledge is power. And I was very excited about that. Ocean Conservancy has also been very aggressive in terms of uh, marine debris, because that is a scourge. 80% of marine debris comes from land. 10% comes from fishing vessels and 10% comes from commercial shipping. Now we have a MARPOL for that. And that's MARPOL 5. So ships that are, you know, they're, they're required to keep a garbage log. And if their garbage log doesn't match they're, when they get into port and they're inspected and it doesn't match up, they will get detained or fined. I want to switch gears a little bit because you were recognized as one of the top 100 women in shipping. And I think that is fantastic. And having this conversation with you, I can see why, because you're so well-informed and you work with both industry and nonprofits to, in essence, save the sea. Mm -hmm. um, what, is, what does that mean for other women and people in the industry to get nominated for something like this? Oh, gosh. I think what's unique about me being recognized is I'm recognized for the three areas of activity that I'm engaged in, and these are three companies that I've, I founded. It's not, I'm not CEO of a publicly traded shipping company. To recognize someone who is working in multiple areas, but works with passion is a nice affirmation of why I do it. I love this industry. And to be recognized for that, that passion is really quite an honor. What I'm hoping 
is that we're going to see more women coming into shipping. Uh, WISTA and the IMO partnered on a survey recently, and the survey revealed that 29% now of the shipping industry is female, but only 2% still are on ships. So we have okay. to get that number up. Um, I think, yeah, there was a, uh, just a, a survey that was revealed earlier this week that talked about how senior leadership in shipping still needs to be developed. Uh, I was with a group of young women today, and I was so excited to see the passion that they have for the industry, but also recognize that we need, we need mentors. I mean, they need to know who to look to as guideposts. And if you don't have a lot of women at the top, then there aren't that many guideposts, but that's changing. That's, I mean, Lois Sabraki, for instance, she is CEO of International Seaways. She is amazing. Semi Ramas Palio, who is the CEO of Diana Shipping. She's in Greece. She's amazing. And I'm going to say this, which they'll, they'll both shoot me, but they're both wives and mothers. So they're doing it all. You're balancing they're doing it, right? it well. That and is- that's, the, the, that's the role model we need to say because uh, we need to see. Because men can't bear children. They just can't. I have noticed that over my lifetime. (laughs) And and I don't think we're going to be changing that. So for young women to see that it's possible to achieve your life's goals, which include a family, and to see these women do it successfully is really marvelous. And will bring more women into the industry. You know, it's exciting life. It's pretty much a guaranteed job somewhere. Yes. On the ocean and uh, or in the ports, and uh, I, I think it's it's exciting what you're doing to connect young people to a possible future in a cleaner and greener, or we mm-hmm. should say, bluer. Absolutely, and there are lots of. I mean, it, this is not a state industry anymore. The two of the focus areas that we have right now are decarbonization, which we discussed, and digitalization. Two weeks ago, I think it was Maersk uh, announced that they were going to start hiring gamers. Because our industry is digitizing quickly and we are working with AI. I'm not committed to unmanned vessels at this point, but I do recognize that we are getting more and more technology into our industry and it's exciting. You know, it's sort of a dichotomy though, which is sort of fun because on the one hand, we're bringing in more digital tools, on the other hand, we're putting sales back on the commercial vessels. Well, you have to bring up all of your options to do what you're doing. And I'm actually thinking as you're talking about the uh, living on an island and being in San Francisco Bay, um, I live in Colorado. So we have to recognize the importance of getting our products shipped to us. Yes. And then, we, you know, utilize rail and, and trucks. Mm-hmm. But yet without the shipping industry, um, no matter where we are anywhere in this world, we would definitely be feeling the impact of that. Absolutely. Um, I was in New go. Orleans last week. Yes. And obviously the Mississippi is what brings so many goods oh. into the Middle West. Yes. I, I also just want to congratulate you on your reappointment as the International Maritime IMO um, Organization's Goodwill Ambassador. So yes. You, you, you are being recognized from all over the world. So that's just a great, a great thing. Well, that is a true honor because the United States Coast Guard nominated me. Wow. And then the IMO approved me. Um, and as the, then, so here's where my thinking goes, okay? 
uh, if the IMO is a UN agency and I'm a Goodwill Maritime Ambassador, that makes me the Angelina Jolie of shipping. <laughs> I love it. Without the 13 adopted kids. <laughs> That's a bit of an asset, I must say. <laughs> You'll have to show me your tattoos one of these days. <laughs> <laughs> I'm salty, well, but not that salty. <laughs> uh, Got it. Well, I want to thank you. Um, This has been a a delightful interview and we both have learned quite a bit about the maritime industry and about your organization and keep up the good work. And thank Thank you you. for participating in the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. Well, thank you. And I just want to leave you with one thought and that is that every action counts. Everything we do makes a difference. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Kate May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.